Good afternoon. This is Dr. Daniel Guerra, and this is Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Today is 2 November 2023, which makes it All Souls Day. Let's get back into this lecture. Remember, we're on biomedical portrait number five. And I was just getting started talking about the regulation of glycolysis under normal physiological conditions. And then we're going to use that to load it into our understanding of how PFK1 may be associated with curtailing the full oxidative burst, particularly leading to chronic inflammation that is yielded from neutrophil response to bacterial infection. Okay. So, as I recall, I was about uh, here. Let's go back and just say this. I'll say that there's a cyclic AMP-dependent protein kinase. This is just repeating what I said uh, yesterday, I guess, that alters the phosphorylation state of PFK1, among many other enzymes. Remember, PFK1 is phosphatokinase 1. It's a glycolytic enzyme. PFK1 is allosterically activated by a, a non-glycolytic hexose sugar known as fructose 2,6-bisphosphate. And fructose 2,6-bisphosphate is synthesized by a bifunctional enzyme. That bifunctional enzyme is called PFK2-FEPase2. Now, that doesn't happen. That phosphorylation doesn't happen unless that enzyme is phosphorylated by a protein kinase. But when that protein kinase phosphorylates PFK2, FBPase2, in most cellular systems, so this would be, of course, the liver enzyme, which is this is uh, one of the enzymes that's significant uh, in our discussion here, because a liver enzyme complex is similar to what happens in lymphocytes and leukocytes. So when that enzyme is phosphorylated in neutrophils, it will not generate fructose 2,6-bisphosphate. In fact, it will dephosphorylate that allosterically associated hexose bisphosphate, making once again fructose 6-phosphate. So that's basically the substrate for PFK1, okay? So that means that the D-phospho, PFK2, FEPase2, that's the, that's the enzyme that it has bifunctionality. When it is non-phosphorylated, it will generate fructose 2,6-bisphosphate, which will act allosterically will bind to a different surface in PFK1 and activate PFK1. But in skeletal muscle and in cardiac muscle, it's different. Here, AMP kinase, okay, it's AMP kinase. That's not cyclic AMP-dependent kinase. AMP kinase phosphorylates the bifunctional enzyme which is that PFK2, FEPase2, at a unique serine residue. 
And when that happens, it induces PFK2 activation over the phosphatase activity. So therefore stimulating glycolysis, because now fructose 2,6-bisphosphate is made upon the bifunctional enzyme PFK2, FBPase2 being phosphorylated. So the phosphoenzyme acts as a fructose 2,6-bisphosphate synthesizing enzyme. And that, PF, uh, and that fructose 2,6-bisphosphate goes on marshalling the activation of PFK1 in skeletal muscle and also in cardiac muscle. Now, the reason all this occurs this way is it's a way of overcoming hypoxia. Remember, hypoxia renders the mitochondrial electrotransport chain and therefore oxygen phosphorylation non-functional. And I explained last time that's because molecular oxygen is the ultimate electron acceptor becoming reduced one electron at a time to H2O. So when oxygen is depleted as in stress or in heavy skeletal muscle contraction, glycolysis must be stimulated as AMP levels rise, right? Because remember, you're going from ATP to ADP to AMP. And therefore, AMP kinase, right? would be the enzyme that would phosphorylate that unique serine residue. So now you understand that picture, okay? That's very important to understand. Let me get into some detail here now, because it's fun to do, right? And it is a uh, Thursday afternoon. So the activation of adenylate cyclase by glucagon triggers the synthesis of cyclic AMP which then allosterically dissociates two suppressor domains of cyclic AMP protein kinase, thus activating its protein kinase activity, which phosphorylates the bifunctional fructose 2,6-bis uh, kinase, fructose 2,6-bis phosphatase, <clears throat> thus converting it to the phosphatase which removes, because it's a phosphatase enzyme, it removes the 2-phosphoryl group from already formed fructose 2,6-bisphosphate, which would have allosterically activated <coughs> PFK1. Okay? So that's what cyclic AMP-dependent protein kinase does. At the same time, that same enzyme, cyclic AMP-dependent PK, will phosphorylate directly phosphofructokinase 1, thus further inhibiting it. Okay? So now you understand how the allosteric regulation of neutrophil, as well as liver in general, PFK1, is regulated. Remember, the neutrophil phosphofructokinase 1 is an L-type PFK1. It's got the L signature because it's the one first described for the hepatic system, see, for the liver, right? All right, so now you get kind of the whole picture here of the way this is functioning. <clears throat> now, ATP also acts as an allosteric inhibitor of PFK1 that basically is like feedback inhibition. 
At the same time, ATP binds to its unique substrate site. Okay, because remember, ATP is also a substrate for PFK1. Because PFK1 catalyzes the reaction fructose 6-phosphate plus ATP goes to fructose 1,6-bisphosphate plus ADP. Okay? That's a normal glycolytic reaction, right? Yes, indeed. Now, more detail there. PFK1 is a tetramer with each subunit possessing two allosteric sites for ATP binding. Each subunit will have an ATP binding site for substrate and for inhibitor. The ATP binds to the inhibitor site when the tetramer is in the T or tense state, which is slightly less active. When ATP binds to each subunit allosteric site, it completely conforms to the enzyme, the enzyme to the full T state that can no longer bind the other substrate, fructose 6-phosphate, therefore rendering the enzyme, PFK1, inactive. That's how ATP controls glycolytic flux, and that's referred to as mitochondrial-based respiratory control. It also used to be called the Pasteur effect because Louis Pasteur, the French biochemist, was the first to describe the phenomena of respiration controlling metabolism. You see? Okay. And he didn't name it. Somebody named it after him. Long since he had been uh, passed away, I'm sure. But that's how ATP controls glycolytic flux. Okay. Now, AMP, adenosine monophosphate, competes for the allosteric site and brings the enzyme back to life by moving it to the more active R state, which stands for relaxed. Okay? And you can graph this with PFK1 activity on the y-axis and increasing fructose 6-phosphate on the x-axis. At low ATP, the enzyme is characterized with hyperbolic kinetics while increasing ATP concentrations converted to sigmoidal kinetics. Sigmoidal kinetics, therefore, will give you a more prompt superactivation, right? Rather than the slow, steady hyperbolic curve, you get sigmoidal curve where very small changes in substrate can give you very large increases in enzymatic turnover. That's how allostericism works. I really like the PFK uh, system for describing that in, uh, in biochemistry, particularly in graduate biochemistry, because then we can go through all the details. And if you were taking my course in uh, graduate biochemistry, <clears throat> we would plug in all the numbers. Right? We would show you how, uh, how the kinetic parameters K and Vmax are altered. And we would talk uh, you know, about the entire system embedded within the glycolytic flux. And then we could talk about various kinds of disease states relative to the alteration of fructose-2-6-phosphate levels, ADP levels, AMP levels, ATP levels, and what's going on in the mitochondria. Yeah. Now, I'll mention one more thing. Substrate cycling also controls PFK1 balance. And there is this unique enzyme. That means unique, meaning it's not a bifunctional. It's the enzyme, no, and it's also the gluconeogenic enzyme, I might add, 
that's fructose one six bisphosphatase. Okay, and it works as a mechanism to control the influx of fructose 6-phosphate into the oxidative pentose phosphate pathway for dot, 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 NADPH production and also the synthesis of ribose 5-phosphate, of course, for nucleotide biosynthesis. So you see fructose 6-phosphate is a substrate for both the aldolase Right, which is the next reaction of glycolysis, and the transketolase reactions in the OPP. Okay? Yep. As I alluded to last time. Now, there are also control points of glycolysis relative to the glucokinase, hexokinase, the glyceraldi-3-phosphate dehydrogenase, and the pyruvate kinase. And those all feed into, directly or indirectly, PFK1. And I can de detail all of these at some other time, okay? At some other time. Now, there's a lot you can do with understanding intermediary metabolism by understanding that focus on the locus of PFK1 as well as PFK2, right? Okay, now let's go back to our general uh, lecture. I mean, our portrait. That, what I just went through, was for you to get an idea of what's going on here, okay? Yes, indeed. Now, in neutrophils, there's much more we need to consider. Neutrophils were considered for a very long time as a homogeneous cellular population. Why? Well, because it's a very short half-life. And it seems like there's not a lot of alteration of transcriptional activity changes, okay? But many current studies have suggested, this is since about, oh, I don't know, less than 10 years ago, there's a great deal of heterogeneity of neutrophil phenotypes. And this has been revealed because of the highly developed plasticity of these cells in response to various physiological and pathophysiological states. And this wasn't really starting to be described until only about oh, less than five years ago from the literature, as I recall. And well, I know, because I've been covering this. Now, the heterogeneity of neutrophils is especially evident in their functional capacity to produce reactive oxygen species via the NOx2 activation, which is essentially neutrophil function, right? That oxidative burst. And again, the reason this passed by, we didn't see this for a long time, because neutrophils turn over quickly, right? Essentially, they commit suicide. When, they're, when, they get their, when they do their job, when they get to the site and they do their job, they disappear shortly thereafter. And in the process, they generate a huge oxidative burst, thus notifying the rest of the immune system, come here now and deal with this pathogenic state. See? And that obviously is something that has to turn over rapidly, because if that is maintained, if that is something that's sustained, you can imagine the high level of hyperinflammatory response, which is not good for the cell, because it will cause 
local tissue damage that doesn't need to be damaged at all. It would be probably quite deadly. In fact, this is what happens when there is an overabundance of net formation. Remember, that's the neutrophil extracellular traps, which basically arise from, emerge from the oxidative burst and the destruction of the neutrophil itself, sensu stricto. Now, when NOx2 is activated, we, we, we were, let's go through this details because I don't want to leave it behind. Electrons are transferred from the donor, NADPH, to the acceptor oxygen. And then, as you know, superoxide is produced as well as NADP. And that is basically what we mean by the oxidative burst. Very rapid response. The reaction rate is extremely fast. And it requires a very large amount, molar quantity. I don't mean all mole, but I mean a, a large mic, mic, 100 micromolar to millimolar range of NADPH. Okay? Do so you understand this? A lot of NADPH is necessary for this to occur. So NADPH availability actually becomes a key element in the spatiotemporal NOx2 activation in the neutrophil, okay? So here's another whole level of understanding we can open up. NADPH concentration will oscillate in a waveform-like manner in resting neutrophils. That means it'll rise and fall and rise and fall like a wave. Now, that is set up so that that wave can be amplitude modulated meaning getting a big spike in NADPH activity. So it's not like the NADPH is being produced. It is, and it's not like being produced at a steady state low level. It is not. It rises and falls, and so wherever it is on that curve, because everything's happening very rapidly in a neutrophil, the activation happens you know, at the level of microseconds, you're going to be able to reach that peak and then blast it up and generate the amount of NADPH necessary to do the oxidative burst, okay? So in stimulated neutrophils, the amplitude and or the frequency of NADPH oscillations increase according now, not just to the strength of the stimulus, it's a quantitative categorical effect, but also the nature of the stimulus. That's a qualitative categorical effect. And where do you get the qualitative? What do you think? Pattern recognition receptors. Yes. So the changes in stimulus-induced NADPH oscillations is actually correlated with abnormality of NOx2-derived ROS production in neutrophils from patients suffering from <coughs> excuse me, chronic inflammatory diseases. Now, that simple observation suggests a link between the normal physiological NADPH concentration NOx2 activity and then the pathophysiological alteration of NADPH concentration and NOx2 activity, right? which can lead to, as I said, severe host cell damage, even in the absence, you see, of a pathogenic infection. If indeed there's an induction, that is not 
in, not generated by a frank pathogen infection or some other kind of purposed induction of an oxidative burst. Sensu stricto the neutrophil. Now, we know the main source of NDPH neutrophils is the glucose-dependent oxidative phosphate chunk. So the activation of neutrophils with various stimuli will also lead to an increase. This goes way back to the first lecture in the series. I mean, the series of Biomed Portrait 5, right? Uh, leads to an increase in the oxidative phosphate shunt pathway, right? So in the ox OPP oxidative phase, what happens? The enzymes glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase and 6-phosphonogluconate dehydrogenase catalyze the two steps that lead to NADPH generation, right? Of course. So the activity of G6PD and 6PGDH, so those are the two enzymes I just mentioned, of course involved in NOx2 activity regulation. Patients with a severe glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency are more susceptible to, fill in the blank quickly, what am I going to say? Infection. And they present dysfunctions in neutrophil microbiocidal mechanism. Moreover, glucose phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency will result in the absence of reactive oxygen species production by that PMA-stimulated neutrophil measurement. Okay, So it, 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 the reason we use PMA, that four-ball ester, is to be able to just in, do an induction of an oxidative burst in cells and culture, then ask the questions, which enzymes are tuned up, which enzymes aren't tuned up, and what happens to the metabolic flux. That's why you use something like PMA. Okay. Now, at the molecular level, glucose phosphate dehydrogenase and 6-phosphonogluconate dehydrogenase form a supramolecular complex. That's right. Localized at the periphery of the neutrophils. This localization facilitates the interaction with the glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase substrate, glucose 6-phosphate. That's produced at the plasma membrane, and thus that's why this whole enzyme complex that we were talking about before is localized there for the production of NADPH. Yes. Now, this is fascinating because in neutrophils from pregnant women, the complex G6PD6PGDH is relocalized, yes, just an amphibolic event, to the microtubule organizing center, modifying, of course, what would that modify? The site of NADPH release. This difference correlates then with a the decrease, yes, in NOx2-derived ROS production, which is observed in neutrophils isolated from pregnant women. So this keeps that oxidative burst potential lower because of altering the residence for the production of NADPH. You see, by altering the residence, and uh, that is the location, geographical location of the two dehydrogenases, you see. 
that generate NPH. So that the pregnant female does not have oxidative bursts during gestation, which could cause a hyperinflammatory response, which could cause problems, of course, to the fetus. Same. So proteomic analysis of the constitutively active NOx2 complex isolated from neutrophils also reveals the association of 6-asphalogluconate dehydrogenase with the active NOx2 complex. Okay, So now you see the role just of the 6-PGDH in the modulation of ROS production via NADPH availability. So you see how tightly regulated this one enzyme mechanism is, right? Let me check my time. I don't want to go over. Oh, I'm doing okay, but I got to be careful. So this is the amphibolic cellular micro-compartmentalization of specific metabolic flux. And what it's doing is coupling energy metabolism glycolysis to reactive oxygen species synthesis. And that's yet another level of an NDPH oxidase activity regulation, okay? Which is not allosteric. Here we're talking about residence, geographical residence where these enzymes are localized. So metabolism contributes to the regulation of NOx2 activity whose assembly is dependent on subunit interaction. We already went through all this. But there's more to it than what I said. Of course, there's always more to it. Again, if nothing else that you get from my authentic biochemistry lectures, I want you to, again, make very important note. Annotate your notes, in fact. And write in the margins, right, in the marginalia of your notes, which I hope you take, that as complex as we explain a normal physiological state for biochemical flux, there's always multiple levels of complexity superimposed on top of that. And here we're not just talking about, you know, gene expression and, um, oh, trans translational events and translocation of proteins and covalent modifications of enzymes before they're functional, et cetera, et cetera, which is all very important. We're also talking about all the different, different metabolic grids here. Look at all the ones we just went through. Look at all the different allosteric regulations. Look at the specificity of allostericism. Look at the amphibolic nature of moving proteins around in different physiological states, healthy physiological states, such as pregnant women. Right? And all this is already set in place. It's all in situ. It all functions quite admirably. Right? So the disease state is the abnormal state. Okay? So th this is hard sometimes for medical students to grasp because medical students are always thinking about we have all these diseases and we have to understand what's happening at the pathophysiological and my term pathobiochemical level. Okay? Yes, of course we do. But understand at the normal physiological level, you have all of this complexity. So to get a disease state to actually present beyond the normal regulation control to cause enough, let's say, tissue damage, dysbiosis, dysregulation, has to reach a really high watermark. 
for a disease to develop. And that is amazing in itself. It means that life, living systems, are actually very, very sturdy systems. And so when you ever, when you hear about, this take-home lesson, you know what I'm going to say probably, when you hear about something like, well, we have this new drug, or we have this new pharmacotherapy with two or three drugs, or we have this new kinds of surgery, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, or lifestyle change, et cetera. And you think, oh, well, now we're going to be able to like get rid of pancreatic cancer, for example. Look, we haven't even started to talk about the ductal carcinoma, right? I've done it before in other lectures. Here we're just talking about the potentiation of it because of neutrophil-associated P. gingivalis in the tumor microenvironment in the pancreas. So don't think that any of this is easily altered or that there's any way that some minor perturbation in cellular metabolism or gene expression or epigenetic modification of gene expression, etc., 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 or mutation is going to lead to an abundant alteration of the living system. That incurs every that that includes everything that occurs below the level of the central nervous system as well as the central nervous system itself. Think about that. Dr. Daniel J. Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry, on All Souls Day, saying bye for now.